So I invite you to follow along with me as we read verses 1 through 21 of 2 Samuel 3. The Bible says in verse 1, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ethrium, by David's wife, Eglah. And these were born to David in Hebron. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahai. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? And Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. To transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, Who is the land? saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, or Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Behiram, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you. 
and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. The title of our study tonight is, Who's Going to Be King? Who's going to be king? It's the big question as we come into 2 Samuel chapter 3. David is God's chosen king, but at this point, only the tribe of Judah has anointed him king over them. The rest of Israel, as you know, has been following Ishbosheth, which is a surviving son of Saul, whom Abner, which is Saul's chief military commander, the one who's really calling the shots and running the show, Abner was the one who chooses to make Ishbosheth king of Israel in opposition to David and in opposition to God. Now, we don't know what the rest of Israel thinks of Abner's decision. But this is the case nonetheless. Only Judah is following David as king. The rest of Israel is following the house of Saul, in this case, Ish-bosheth. Now this move, move created a civil war between the two parties. And up to this point, negotiations have not worked out. And a lot of people have already died. Joab, the commander of David's army, and Abner, again, the guy who is pulling the puppet strings, if you will, in Saul's house, uh, Joab and, and, and Abner are in constant battle with one another. And this is brought to light by the opening line of verse 1 here in chapter 3. Look at it. It says, now, there was a long war. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Uh, a long war between Judah and the rest of Israel, between Joab's men and Abner's men, between David and Ish. We're talking about a war that lasted approximately seven years when you put the chronology of time all together. We're going a lot quicker through it, although it may feel like we've been in Samuel for seven years. But this is a long-going battle that's happening a lot lot more distant apart than even what we are giving attention to it in the Scripture. And again, the big question is, who's going to come out on top? Who's going to be the king over all of Israel. Perhaps the immediate question of the evening is, who's the king over your life? Who's going to come out on top? Who is king? Now the story unfolds before us, as you've already noted in our reading, like a, uh, like a dateline drama. I don't watch as many datelines as I used to. It was one of the things my doctor said was contributing to so much of my anxiety. I need to stop watching all this crime cases online and on TV. But I can just imagine, I can just imagine Lester Holt introducing this, right? I'm Lester Holt. And tonight on Dateline, we're asking the question, how many wives does a king really have to have, you know? This part of the story is filled with sex, power, and politics. But here's something that I want to be in your heart and mind as we study through any passage like the one we have before us. And that is God is working out his plan in history through imperfect people and in less than ideal circumstances. God is working out his plan in history 
through imperfect people and in less than idea circumstances. And this is not just something that we recognize from the past as we study the story of David here, but it's a fact we must trust in the very present. God uses imperfect people in imperfect places to accomplish his perfect purposes. And so as we navigate all of this and the drama and it feels nasty and it feels gross and we're thinking, what in the world is David doing here? And we have this murder and this harem and all of this thing going on. We must not miss the point that God works out his purposes through imperfect people and in imperfect circumstances. But again, the big question is, who's going to be king? Is it going to be David or is it going to be Ish-bosheth? All right, here we go. Let's walk through it together. Number one, David grew stronger. That's the first header that we see in verses one through five. David grew stronger. Verse 1 says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger. And the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. So we have a contrast, right? David is growing stronger and stronger. The house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. Now, I'm sure there were times that this wasn't always obvious, but it was true nonetheless. It's, it's much like the, the work of Jesus in our world today. It may not always appear that the work of Christ is growing stronger and stronger, but we can trust the Bible in knowing that the house of Jesus is growing stronger and stronger throughout the world. He is fulfilling his purposes, and so it is with David. But remember, it's very important that we understand David is an imperfect type of Christ. All right? He is a type of Christ. He foreshadows the perfect kingdom that will come in Christ. But he's just an imperfect type. He foreshadows Jesus, but he's not Jesus. All right, we need to understand that because we struggle with passages like this. And we've not, it's not been the first time we've seen David in a less than desirable situation where we just kind of cringe a little bit. David, why are you doing this? It's important to remember that even though David is God's chosen king and that David is, is being used by God to usher in the kingdom rule of Jesus Christ, it all points toward Jesus, but, but he is just a type. He's not Jesus. And I bring this to light because of the way in which David's house is getting stronger and stronger. That's apparent in verses 2 through 5. It's not through Nordetrack that his house is getting stronger and stronger. It's through sex and power and politics. He goes from two wives, which we've already addressed in 1 Samuel as a slight predicament for our minds to grasp, Ahinoham and Abigail, to by the end of verse 5, he already has six wives. And each of his wives have borne him a son. Ahinoham gave birth to Amnon. Abigail gave birth to Chiliab, Mekah, who wasn't even Jewish, by the way. Another issue in and of itself. Gave birth to Absalom. Haggith gave birth to Adonijah. Abitel gave birth to 
Sheptatiah, Eglah gave birth to Ethrim. So again, six wives, six sons. Now I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that it appears while Joab was out fighting a lot of battles with Abner, David was pretty occupied back home. (laughs) Which is, as we will see later in our study, seems to be one of David's biggest downfalls. It's not the first time we're going to see David not where necessarily he should be. The whole deal with Bathsheba was because David spent way too much time at home engaging in things that were not a part of his calling. But again, it brings me back to my previous point. David is not Jesus. He may be a type of Jesus, but the narrator is reminding us here in 2 Samuel of a very important truth, and that is David has feet of clay. He has weaknesses. He has sinful desires. Like any one of us, David is going to have moments in his life where there are indiscretions. And that causes us to wonder why the Scripture doesn't give any comment here to the obvious issue of polygamy with David. In fact, we'll not find any comment about it. I don't mean to dive into this tonight, but I at least have to approach the obvious that is apparent here. And let me just give you a few things to just mull over in your mind and perhaps do your own research on this later. One, the law of Moses neither prohibits polygamy nor does it endorse it. It's just there. It's not until we get to the New Testament that these things are even addressed more specifically, such as the requirements of a pastor and deacon, the husband of one wife, all right? That means he's not to have multiple wives at one time, as was the common trait in this typical culture, polygamy. It's just there. It's not prohibited. It's not endorsed. It's just there. However, every time we do find it in the Old Testament, it is never held up as something to be followed, And furthermore, it never produces, never a positive outcome. In fact, when it appears, it is consistently displayed with a warning from God to the people of God. And for those of you familiar to the life of David, you'll note very quickly that these sons we named a moment ago are the sons that are going to cause him a great deal of pain, a great deal of heartache, Amnon. Absalom. So why, so why the narrator doesn't comment on what David is doing as being wrong, those life implications will eventually show itself. That what David was doing here was inappropriately, uh, inappropriate. Additionally, there was a law for kings, all right? Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 17 clearly states that kings of Israel were never to multiply wives for themselves. Never. So David here is in clear violation of God's will by taking multiple lives. Walter Chantry commented on it like this. He said this was an ugly feature of David's life. It was an ugly feature of David's life. So why did David do it? And why do we see in the Bible other kings doing it? Because this is how 
They built their dynasty. It's how they gained power. Through the giving of wives and concubines, they were able to receive potential land and control. Of course, sex is a part of it, but it's a great deal of politics. And then we ask ourselves, then why did God even allow it? Why did he allow it? Well, I don't know. Does that that meet your satisfaction? (laughs) I don't know. Other than for the same reason Jesus said that Moses made a provision for divorce. He did so because of the hardness of our hearts. That's the best I can do. Now, the only reason God allowed it was because of the hardness of their hearts. And the point is this. David will live the rest of his life with the implications of acquiring multiple wives. And the point needs to be made that you and I will live with the implications of ignoring God's word. Because as king, he ignored God's word. He was not to do what he did. And he did it anyway. And he will live with those implications the rest of his life. And so David's growing stronger and stronger. Howbeit, not the way he should have been growing stronger and stronger. At the same time, the house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker. And then we find another interesting facet to this whole drama. Right down number two, Abner decides to change sides. Abner changes sides. This this covers verses 6 through 11. Look at verse 6. Now it was so that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So David is growing stronger, but so is Abner in the sense that his hold on Ishbosheth has never been stronger. Now, Saul's house in general may be weakening, but Abner's ambition is not. Abner's power is not. He's as strong as ever. He's calling the shots like never before. And all of this that has unfolded, it's all Abner's doing. In fact, the language of verse 6 indicates that Abner is making himself strong. He is strengthening his hold, strengthening his hand around Ishbosheth and the house of Saul. He's doing whatever he can to put himself in position to maneuver himself to power, to manipulate everything, to follow exactly the way that he would design it. He's the one playing the game here, not Ishbosheth, and he's positioned himself where he wants to be. But Abner's power, his power moves, they come back to bite him because look at what happens in verse 7. Verse 7 indicates that Abner committed sexual immorality with one of Saul's concubines, Rizpah, and Ishbosheth discovers it. And so Ishbosheth comes to Abner and says, why have you gone into my father's concubines? Now I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think Ishbosheth's concern here is morality whatsoever. Again, we're talking about a lot of indiscretion. This has more to do with power than it does anything. And I think that's where Ishbosheth's mind is. His concern is power and authority. And Abner had crossed the line of understanding his own role in the kingdom. Which is why he looks at Abner and says, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Coming into my father's 
concubine and having your way with her. Who do you think you are? You're not the king, Abner. I'm the king, not you. Abner didn't like that. And so in verse number 8, it says, Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth. And he said, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? You're going to treat me like a dog? And today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? In other words, after all I've done for you, Ishbosheth, you're king because of me. I've protected your throne because of me. This whole thing, it belongs to David. It doesn't belong to, to you. And you're going to let this one little thing cause you to be so upset with me? Abner's anger seems to reveal what we all wonder about the man himself. At least, I've kind of come to think about it. Was Abner's end game all along to manipulate Ishbosheth? And maneuver himself in order to take the throne? That seems to be the picture to me. And everything Abner was doing is to finally get into a position where he would wear the crown. And it seems apparent that Ishbasha, I really struggle with that name, by the way. I've pronounced it three different three different ways tonight. Ishbasheth. It appears that Ishbasheth. It's finally convinced us this as well. John Woodhouse said, we can reasonably speculate that taking Saul's concubine was a first step to taking Saul's throne. Taking Saul's concubine was first step to taking Saul's throne. And so Abner's animosity now turns into retaliation. Look at verse 9. May God do so to Abner and more also if I do not for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set upon the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So there we have it. As we mentioned before, Abner was... There, when the message from God had been delivered to Saul that David was to be the next king of Israel, Abner knew that all along, even when he still chose to make Ishbosheth the king over Israel. But now he's uncovering that truth before Saul's son. He's saying to him, You're not even the man that God wants to be on the throne. And I, Abner, am going to see to it to myself that you are destroyed. And that the right man is put into place. You see, Ishbosheth knew how strong and powerful Abner was. And those words terrified him. It left him speechless. And for all that we see now, Abner, even though we can't quite figure out his motives, is changing sides. You see, Abner knew the truth about David's divine appointment to be God's king over Israel. We've already touched on that many times since opening up 2 Samuel. The question is, why did he choose the wrong side to begin with? He knew what was true. He just didn't want to believe it. He spent 
all this time actually convincing himself that there was a future for the house of Saul and that he, Abner, was in control of that future. He knew the truth. He knew the truth. He just refused to believe it. Consider how many people like Abner know the truth. They know that Jesus Christ is king, but they simply refuse to believe it. They've convinced themselves that they are in control of their future. And they surely, surely there is someone, maybe even themselves, that they would rather have Lord of their life. You know, I don't don't know here. I, I don't think Abner's decision to change side change sides is motivated by theology as much as it is by politics. Because even in this statement to Ishbasha, he suggests that it will be him. This is how arrogant he is. He suggests, Abner does, that it will be him that transfers the kingdom from Saul to David. Did you notice that? He says, I will transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul to The house of David. There's a striking arrogance here. He believes that he, he, not God. He believes that he is the key to putting on the throne whoever he wants. So, Abner sees that his future at becoming king is probably over in the house of Saul. This is not going to go anywhere. I mess around with one too many concubines. Ishbosheth has found me out. He's furious. So maybe my best play is to try the other side. He sees that perhaps the grass is greener with David. And there's a possibility of him achieving power in Hebron. And that leads me to the third thing that we'll look at tonight. And that is Abner and David negotiate. Abner and David negotiate. So that begins at verse 12 all the way down through verse 21. And let me summarize this for you. We don't have time to take every phrase apart. Abner sends messengers to David's house, and here's what he says in verse 12. He says, if you'll make a covenant with me, my allegiance will be with you, and I will bring all of Israel to your kingship. All right? However he got it. Maybe he Facebook messaged him. Maybe he sent him an email. And maybe a messenger went along the way on horseback. I don't know. He gets this message, and here's what the message says. Hey, Abner says, if you'll make a covenant with him, he's going to flop his allegiance to you, and he's going to bring all of Israel under your kingship. Again, inferring that he's the one responsible for all the play going on anyway. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I expect David to say, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm expecting David, who knows Abner, to say, I, I don't trust that guy for a single minute. Ain't no way I'm entering into any kind of agreement or covenant with him. But to my surprise, David in verse 13, look at it, says, good, good. Sounds good. I'll make a covenant with you. I'm shocked at this. But at least David here, in his wisdom and craft, is the one who sets the terms of the covenant. 
He's not allowing Abner to set the terms. David is setting the terms. All right, good. I'll do it. But I'm making the covenant with you. You're not making the covenant with me. It'll be on my terms. And here's what he says. He says that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ish. Basheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Now, this is an interesting turn of events, isn't it? Do you remember who Michal was? This is David's first wife, Saul's daughter, whom David slew 200 Philistines. Actually, remember, Saul only asked for 100, but he is so in love with this woman that his betrothal gift is 200 foreskins of the Philistines. That was how he brought it back. I know I say it all the time. There are certain scenes in the Bible I hope we get the view on camera. That's not one of them. But he does it nonetheless. And he does it in order for Saul to agree to give his daughter Michal her hand in marriage. And Saul does. But then sometime later, when David's on the run from Saul, Saul takes Michal away from David. Chapter 25, he gives her in marriage to Paltiel. And perhaps... David and Michal had not seen each other at all since the night that Michal deceived her father and allowed David out the back window in order to get a head start. That was way back in chapter 8, I think. So a lot of time has passed. And he's thinking about, maybe in this sweet little romantic way, his first love, Michal. He wants her back. Why does he want her back? I wrote two possible reasons. One, legitimate affection. Legitimate affection. Michal had been taken from David by Saul. Remember, she was the one who lied about David where he was, allowing David to escape. But then she lied to Saul in order to protect herself about David trying to kill her. There was a lot of drama going on between this, this honeymoon between David and Michal. But it's possible here that after all these years, David is acting out on a legitimate affection for the wife that he lost. Whether it was by her will or against her will, we don't know. So it's possible legitimate affection. It's also possible that more politics are at play here. A consolidation of the kingdom, as most commentators put it. Again, more of the power and control. It could be that he wants the daughter of Saul back in order to solidify his authority. If he can just bring that family member in the house of Saul back in as one of his wives, and that pretty much shuts the door on his control over Saul's house. It is certainly a complex issue. Not to mention that we already see in this chapter that he's six wives at home already. This would be number seven. And I know we like to say seven is the perfect number, but not in this case. Verse 15 says, And Ish-bosheth sent and took her from her husband. This is a really sad scene. From Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Behruim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. What an incredibly sad scene. I, I wish we knew more about this, by the way. I wish we knew more about it. You know, how, how, how was she approached by her brother, Ishbosheth? 
I mean, it is like, Mikael, pack your stuff. We're going. Where are we going? Well, I'm taking you to Hebron. What's in Hebron? David. You're going back to David. I don't want to go back to David. Well, he was your first husband. This is a part of the deal. It's politics. I know you don't understand, but you got to go. I don't want to go with him. I've been married to Paltiel for 15 years. I want to be with him. I don't know how this worked. But we also see here a husband who is ripped apart by the scene. He's following behind his wife all the way to a neighboring town until finally Abner says, enough of that sobbing. You need to go back home and get you another wife. Go back home. Politics, power, sex. But I want you to think about something. All of this, even this sad, difficult scene between Mikal and Paltiel would have never happened, never happened, were it not for the fearful jealousy of a man named Saul. It was Saul's fear of David, all because of that silly song that everybody was singing in the streets. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Oh, it lit him up. It infuriated him. And now hundreds of people have died. His family is a mess. And another marriage is ripped apart. It is true that there are implications to ignoring God. And sometimes those implications reverberate quite a long time. Abner then approaches the elders of Israel, and let's close this up. He goes to the various tribes, negotiates their allegiances to David as king. He's simply inviting them to come to King David. This is, this is what we're to spend our lives doing, by the way, inviting people to come to King Jesus. That's, that's the scene here. He's out inviting people to come to David. David is the one God has chosen. David is the one who is to be the king. This is, this is his land. It belongs to God. He is God's man. Come, come to King David. Come to King David. What a beautiful call of invitation that we're to spend our lives engaging in. Come to King Jesus. This is his world. This is my father's world. He has created it. You are a part of his purposes. Come, give your allegiance to King Jesus. And so that's what Abner does. And he's making all of this happen as he is accustomed to doing. And then David invites him to meet with him face to face. Abner's proven himself. And David says... Bring him in. Verse 20 and 21, here's where we close. Abner and 20 men with him come to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner. By the way, let me stop right here and say, this kind of pours water on my idea or initial thought that David going after Mekel was more of a legitimate affection than it was a consolidation for power. Because if we think about it, if it was about affection, a wife he hadn't seen in maybe 15 years, and he's now reunited, but where's the feast for her? In fact, we won't see her mentioned again until chapter 6, and it's not in a positive light. So it may give us a little insight into the politics at play here. David doesn't throw a feast 
for Michal. He throws the feast for Abner. And the men were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king so that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Abner's good, isn't he? He's good at what he does. And of course this banquet scene comes as a a surprise again. I mean, Abner seems to be duplicitous. His motivations seem to be about himself and his own power. Yet David surprises us by inviting him and serving this feast and then letting him go in peace of all things. I think it says more about David than it does really Abner. The ongoing character of Israel's true king. He's generous. He's gracious. He's gentle. He's humble. He's looking out for the good of the kingdom. It may appear that Abner's desire is nothing more than political ambition. And that may be all that it is. Unfortunately, we're not given any insight to that. But it is clear that on David's part that his desire is to pour out goodness to others. Especially to to those in Israel, including, including his once repulsive adversary. I mean, this whole thing is so surprising that in verse 22, as we'll see next Wednesday, Joab is going to come back home from a raid and he cannot believe what he's heard. He cannot believe that David had brought Abner in and had a feast with their adversary. We we stop here tonight, but with a couple of concluding thoughts. Number one, it is possible for rebels to find peace. It is possible that you who were once alienated from God, you who were once his enemy are now made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank God that rebels can find peace in King Jesus. It really is a matter of deciding who's going to be your king, who's going to be the Lord of your life, who's going to be on top. There was much for Abner to learn in order to be a, the, the changed man that he presents himself to be, but at least he made the most important change by changing who his king was. Rebels can find peace. And then secondly, secondly, I want to leave you with this one. God is at work, not only despite these circumstances. And when I say circumstances, I mean the politics, the polygamy, God is at work not only despite these circumstances, but he's actually at work through these circumstances. Through these circumstances. Remember, I said at the beginning of the message, God is working out his plan through imperfect people and in less than idea circumstances. That's not an excuse for you and I to dive in joyfully to a messy life void of holiness. No, 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 we are to live our lives with an awareness that God will fulfill his purposes in us regardless of how messy life gets. And life gets messy. The world gets messy. Kings get messy. 
servants and people of God get messy. But then again, it's not David that we're to fix our eyes to. It won't be Solomon. And it ain't me. It is to King Jesus we look. (laughs) The one who loves taking messes and cleaning them up for his graceful purposes. I leave you with that thought tonight. Who's your king? Who's your king? Let's stand together for prayer.